Uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mark Fry. Dr. Fry is an associate professor in the Department of Integrated Biology and Physiology, as well as being an early career scientist of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Uh, in addition, he's received numerous awards and honors from several influential organizations, such as the W.M. Keck Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Join me in welcoming Dr. Mark Fry. Let me start off this um, discussion with a provocative statement. You are a machine, okay? Neuronal microcircuits and electrochemical events at the level of molecules ultimately determine the most complex thought, perception, sensory um, uh, detail, and motor action that you, ever, that you will ever produce. Okay, your brain is complicated, but it doesn't work any differently, fundamentally, from the brain of this animal here, the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. And really, the, sort of the, the cutting edge of neuroscience research today is not so much an understanding the, the, the specific cellular molecular detail of the function of neurons, but more so, how does the whole thing work? How does the whole processor process? How is it that we think and feel and process sensory information, transform those sensory signals into motor actions? How is it that Reggie Adrian is able to ectopically essentially produce a stimulus in the lower spinal cord that enables neuronal connections that could never be there otherwise, that were transected? This is a, a wave of understanding that is revolutionizing neuroscience. I focus on this animal, the fruit fly, simply because its processor is smaller. Okay? So let's consider what we might do if we were com to compare human and, and fly uh, sensory motor performance. So here's a typical human. Okay? And this is a sort of less typical fly. This is a hoverfly, Aristalis. You can find these guys hovering around in the botanical garden. So you can find this guy sitting right over here. Now, this guy's processor is about 100 billion neurons. It's impressive. At least. <laughs> Fewer and fewer every day. <laughs> this character moves around at several body lengths per second on a good day. And its, it's visual encoding can be characterized as transmitting information at about 100 bits per second. Okay? Fair enough. This little creature has, oh, merely 100,000 neurons rather than 100 billion. It moves around at hundreds of body lengths per second on a slow day. And its visual encoding is an order of magnitude faster, or more rich in information transmission. So I ask you, if you were going to try to figure out how the most sophisticated processor ever evolved works, would you start with the big one or the little one? Well, I'm kind of a simpleton, so in my lab we start with the little one. But we're hoping to glean some broad conceptual framework that we can understand how all brains process information. But we have broader motivations than that. So biologically, we're also interested in how um, uh, uh, multi-sensor fusion works. So you all know this intuitively. There's your sense of vision, touch, uh, hearing, smell, and taste, for example. These uh, modalities don't operate independently of one another. Right? So for example, your sense of flavor emerges as much from your sense of, of tactile touch on your palate uh, and your sense of smell as it does on your sense of taste. Um, your visual and auditory systems are integrated so that your eyes can rapidly snap to the position of my fingers when I do that, like that, or back here, or over here, okay? You, your ears localize it, your eyes localize it. There's literally a tissue map in your brain that registers that information sequentially. 
So I'm interested broadly in how does the brain integrate or fuse information from multiple sensory modalities. And we know a lot about how each modality works. We know much less about how they're fused or integrated. It's a higher order problem that we haven't tackled yet. Another motivation comes from engineering. And I have some background in this. Um, using multi-sensor fusion algorithms to build robots. Robots that are small, that have flapping wings. And why would you want to do such a stupid thing besides build toys for your kids, which frankly is a motivation that could make a lot of money. But more importantly, for example, earthquake um, rubble search. You know, you'd, you'd like to have, have micro air vehicles that can fly around in here and cramp spaces with variable airflow and search for olfactory targets. That'd be us. Um, and, and, they, and these things would be inexpensive and expendable. You'd just literally sprinkle 100 of them in there, and you don't care if you get none of them back. But they radio back information, you know, somebody's here, somebody's trapped, I've smelled a, a, a human. You know, the cockroach will find you beautifully, right? So, so this is the inspiration. But controlling these things is actually quite a challenge. How do you build robots that you can control? So the inspiration is, secondarily, how can we use fly uh, sensor fusion as a technical inspiration for micro-air vehicle control? So in my lab, how do we study fly sensory integration um, I'm a neurobiologist by training. I want to understand how the nervous system controls behavior, but I'm dragged into the world of physics and biomechanics because of the way sensory systems are embedded in mechanical systems. So if you consider some important sensory features of the world, vision and olfaction for flies, you can formalize those with block diagrams and equations that can interrelate these things in an engineering sense. Um, these signals are processed through premotor networks into central neuronal networks that, again, can be modeled in a separate step to produce motor output that activates musculoskeletal mechanics, wing kinematics, and aerodynamics that propel the animal through space. It's this whole cascade that elicits sensory feedback that changes dynamically that you need to know about if you want to understand how these sensors are integrated. So my lab takes kind of a broad integrative approach to understanding components of this cascade, some of which I'll highlight today. Now, we're going to focus on two issues, visual and olfactory feature detection today. Feature detection is something that you just do, you take it for granted, okay? It's, it's intuitive. You can spot the visual features flying by on these panels. Some properties of a visual feature include the motion of an edge or contour, like the laser spot moving back and forth. It's a pure motion signal. Your eyes can follow it. Other features could be defined by disparities in the scene. For example, in all three of these panels, there's no motion. There's no pure motion signal, okay? There's just spatial disparities that you can cue in upon. So feature tracking is some complex function of local motion, i.e. your eyes can track a real moving stimulus, or some global feature characteristics, your eyes can track these features independent of motion. Olfactory feature detection can be illustrated here in this three panel figure where you have, in this case, a dog. This is a bloodhound in the dark that's following the trail laid down by this pheasant as it moves through uh, across this field. And you can see that the dog's got little lights on its collar. And you can see the sort of circuitous track the dog makes as it homes in on the the scent path made by the, by the bird. In this case, this human, this female at UC Berkeley, is tracking a scent of chocolate that's been dragged across the, gra the grass. <laughs> and she's wearing headphones with noise, so she can't hear anything. She's got goggles on. She can't see anything. She has gloves on, these mittens and all kinds of stuff. She's wearing heavy clothing. She can't feel anything. And she's tracking this chocolate path. In this case, this is the trajectory of a fruit fly following a, a sort of virtual scent path. And you'll notice that they look quite similar, even though the tacks are obviously very different. So some of the properties of an olfactory feature include the spatial pattern of intensity. Is it, can you still smell it over here? If not, go back where you were. And the temporal pattern of intensity. As you move along, is your exposure increasing in rate or decreasing? So feature tracking in the olfactory world has to do with spatial pattern and temporal pattern of intensities. We study these two things in flies in the following way. So for visual 
tracking, we have a visual virtual reality system. So we take a fly, we glue it to a steel pin suspended in an infrared beam. That infrared beam images the shadows of the beating wings on an optical sensor. So we can track the animal's attempts to steer left or right. When the animal tries to steer to the left, for example, it'll beat this wing harder and this wing less so, okay? And steering. So we can measure the steering effort as a difference between the left and right wing amplitude. And then we can say, all right, fly, you're producing some changes in wing beat amplitude. We can electronically couple that to the display that's wrapped around the fly. This is an LED display, and it would look like this. So in this case, you're looking down on one of these LED displays. There's a single vertical bar that's being moved back and forth. But the fly is steering this thing independently of anything we are doing. When the fly steers left, the world goes right. When the fly steers right, the world goes left. So the fly is playing a video game and actively orienting to this visual feature. Okay? We're not experimentally changing anything. And if you plot the data, it would look like this. So on this axis, vertically, is the angular rotation of the arena from minus 180 to directly in front to directly in back over time. So this is the position of one of these vertical contours if you let the fly control it. And on average, it's right in the middle, right at zero, which is straight ahead for the fly. So the flies actively orient this visual feature. In the olfactory realm, we have to do things a little bit differently. So, so in this case, what we're, we call this closed loop feedback system, right? The fly is closing a feedback loop with its own sensory environment. And then we can artificially screw with it. Okay? We can mess with it and ask, can you compensate for this? Can you compensate for that? Can you see, you know, we can experimentally perturb the system and ask the fly directly, can you fix it or not? In the olfactory regime, we have to change things a little bit. Now, instead of the fly steering the odor plume, we have to let the fly steer in and out of an odor plume. So in this case, we have a fly glued to a pin suspended in a magnetic field. So here you see the fly glued to a pin. There's a magnetic field that keeps the pin oriented. So the animal can spin. This is a camera from beneath. The animal can spin around in a circle, but it's otherwise tethered in place. And we use the video to track you know, where the animal's trying to orient. The whole thing is wrapped with this LED display. This is basically high-definition high TV for a fly. This pixelated panel in the back looks perfectly smooth and, and fast to a fly. Uh, your spatial acuity is much better than a fly's, but a fly's temporal precision is much better than yours. Now, we superimpose upon this an olfactory stimulus system where we have an odor port that dribbles out a little bit of odor at a very low flow rate and sucked into a little vacuum chamber. So there's a teeny little odor plume on one side of the arena. Okay, and now we can ask, can the fly track that? So here is the same kind of data. On this axis is the angle in the arena, zero being straight in front over time. So there's five different trajectories here. We start the animals all in one spot, and we could do that with a visual stimulus. I'll talk about it later. And we say, all right, flies, you're, in the, you're, in, you're right at this one spot. What do you do if the odor's off? And you see all these trajectories diverge. They're just turning around in the arena and exploring the way they do here. But for the same flies, if you flip the odor source on, and this is apple cider vinegar, they love this stuff. They will track beautifully. They just stay oriented right inside the plume. So there's a lot of similarities, at least qualitatively, between visual feature tracking and olfactory feature tracking. So here's an example where you have a visual bar, and the animal tracks in time, and a histogram here showing how tightly tuned in space the animal is actively tracking that bar. Okay? And in this plot, same idea, but now the animal is spinning around instead of the uh, visual cue. And the olfactory gradient is fixed, but the animal orients into the odor plume over time very tightly. And a total histogram shows you the tuning curve that shows spatially where the animal is oriented right at zero where the odor is. So our goal is to understand the behavioral algorithms and neural circuits for feature tracking. OK, 
in, a, in a kind of a broader sense. And I'll walk you through a couple of stories to illustrate components of both of these. We'll start with vision. Visual processing in flies is incredibly complicated. This is one half of the fly's brain. This is, these are the three visual neuropil, and they comprise 100 neurons per retinal unit. Um, there's 8,000 retinal units. Despite about 50 years of research, we have a really good understanding of about one one hundredth of the total number of cells in this circuit. Um, on the left, you can schematically diagram what we know, and I'm not going to walk you through this. It's just meant to illustrate that some computations are made locally, and some computations are made globally, integrating lots of local circuits. Okay? Um, we don't understand, as I said, lots of the function of many of these cell circuits because they're so small you can't get electrodes in them. Traditionally, how you study um, cellular function in some of these visual circuits is you can actually poke an electrode into the fly's brain and record its activity while the, you show the fly videos and you can record how the neuron responds. It works the same way in primates, fundamentally. But in flies, it's tough because a lot of these circuits are small. But we have a trick in flies that, don't work, that isn't available in other mammalian systems to this degree, and that is that we can genetically, through some sort of genetic chicanery, we can handle small subsets of neurons at a time. In this case, we're labeling a small group of genetically homologous or addressable neurons with green fluorescent protein. The rest of the brain is totally black, meaning we're not genetically manipulating anything else but this one small cell group. And, we, and that cell group actually resides up here. We can ask, what can we do with this cell group if we shut it off and turn it back on? Can we manipulate the animal's ability to detect visual motion? Now, to do this, we kind of we, we, we had a, a genetic screen for lots and lots and lots of cell groups like this, thousands of them, actually. And so we had to develop a way to, to screen all these different genetic reagents without gluing all these flies to sticks one at a time. It would drive the postdocs and grad students bananas. So we came up with a high-throughput system. And this system is a tube of flies. We can load up 100 flies in a 20-centimeter gla glass tube, suspend this thing in kind of an LED hallway, move the visual world back and forth, and just ask, where do the animals run? And they run in the same way that they would fly. If you visually perturb them, they'll follow the, the visual uh, stimulus. We can track the whole distribution with an infrared-sensitive video camera and look at the distribution of the white spots representing the flies and just ask, can we perturb their motion sensitivity or not with these genetic manipulations? So let's just look at a movie of what that looks like. So here's an image in infrared of the pattern in visible light. And when we move the pattern, you see all the flies immediately stampede to the center of the arena. Right? It's as if, hey, there's undergraduates, there's free beer. You know, here they come. You know, oh, didn't have a permit to sell the beer, so here come the police. And so they're, they're scattering, and they're gone off the side. So this is a very robust phenomenon, right? You can very clearly see with your own naked eyes that you know, these flies can see and respond to these moving, moving edges just fine. So here's some data, just some snapshots over time. Here's a random distribution of flies. As you begin to move the scene, they converge. And you can pseudocolor that here. So this would be lots and lots of data. And you can see this convergence, this strong visual response. Now, if you genetically silence this, this, this single cell class out in the peripheral visual system, those flies are totally motion blind. So here's the control flies. Again, you see they converge to the center. When you change the direction of the pattern, they disperse. When you turn the pattern off, they just sit there. They're not attracted to that region of the arena because it smells good or something. So you get this beautiful visual response that you can invert and turn off, but these genetically inactivated circuits, totally motion blind. You'd never know the flies were unhealthy. They mate. They sing with their wind. They do everything that normal flies do. They just can't see any motion. So 
we know that elementary motion signals were segregated way out in the very first visual relay, which is, a, frankly, an astonishing finding. OK, so we know something now about the function of local motion computations for feature tracking. OK, just kind of store that. Features, unlike that sort of wide field pattern that drove those flies in and out of the arena, features are defined um, in, in a couple different ways. So this so-called first-order motion signal, this is what you all think of when you think of a, mo a moving object and you track it with your eyes. If this bee is flying by in space, if you drew the, the image of the bee over time, you would get this space-time correlation in luminance, right? The yellow spot would move to the right. In time, it would go down. And so you'd get this strong correlation between dt, ds, right? This straight line between this means there's a strong correlation. If you had a butterfly, by contrast, flapping its wings as it moved by, you see kind of a, you do see a correlation in space and time. This orange, orange blackish bar goes this way. But then you see these black contrast modulations that don't correlate in space-time. Okay, at all. There's a pattern that emerges. It's flickering as the animal goes by, but it doesn't give you any motion signals. By contrast, again, you can think of a little maple leaf seed that's blowing in the wind to the right, but it's rotating clockwise as it's blowing to the right. Okay, and so what happens is the seed goes down this way, but locally it makes very beautiful um, correlations that go in the opposite direction. So even though the seed is blowing from left to right. The strongest motion cues are from right to left. And so we call this paradoxical motion. You can see it just fine. Primates can see it just fine. Can insects see it? Here's what the stimulus would look like if you played it out in our electronic arenas. So here's the arena image splayed out and opened up. It's like these, one of these circular arenas just opened up. And so there's no motion in that last one. Here we've just taken a patch of the background and we slide it back and forth. Your eyes can track it beautifully. That's because it makes this beautiful space-time correlation. See these lines? You can follow those lines. Beautiful space-time correlations. Here's a feature, a second-order feature, that you can see beautifully. Your eyes can follow that. But there's no local correlation in space-time. Right? We're just changing the background um, uh, uh, um, luminance. And here's one of these theta or paradoxical bars. Your eyes can follow the bar just fine, even though locally all of the correlations go in the direction opposite the bar. The bar moves right-left, but the motion energy goes left-right. But you're not fooled. You're not fooled. You have a sophisticated visual system that processes these motion streams in your cortex. In your cortex. I'll repeat that. So flies have no cortex, for those of you that might think otherwise. Um, I kind of think they do have a cortex, but that's another discussion. So here we just said, look, can flies compute higher order motion signals and how does it work? So in this case, what we've done is we're just plotting that stimulus I already showed you. Here's a non-motion flicker. The whole world's just flickering back and forth. Nothing's moving. We have a computational model for elementary, um, elementary motion detector, which is the minimal computation necessary to detect motion. This, the EMD can explain how flies and humans see moving things in the world. And then we have, time is going down, we have the animal steering response in time going down. There's no steering response, there's no motion being detected by the model because there's no motion. Here we move the bar back and forth across the background. You watch this very easily. The EMD model tracks it perfectly and the flies follow it beautifully. For the higher order motion, which you could see beautifully, the EMD model can't see it at all because there's no motion energy. But the flies aren't fooled, they're following the, the bar just like you did. And for the paradoxical bar, where locally the motion is going in the direction opposite the direction of the bar, the model is totally fooled. The model goes backwards compared to the movement of the actual bar. The model thinks the world's going the other way. 
But the flies aren't fooled. There's a bit of a delay. They're a little confused, but they're essentially tracking the bar, not the motion inside the bar. So they're very clearly being able to make these high-order computations that you and I take for granted. They can do this with a visual system that has several orders of magnitude less uh, uh, processing complexity. So we want to get into this a little bit further. Like, How does this work? We can explore this in kind of this sort of time series way. We publish the phenomena. People go, huh? Wow. And, 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 you know, and we thought, well, we need to get you know, a little bit deeper into the mechanism. How can, we, how can we understand this with a model that can predict it? That's the focus. So we came up with a way to do this. We adopted 50-year-old engineering theory and treated the whole fly as a black box. And we said, OK, look, let's just from first principles, let's try to derive the, the, the mathematical principles that explain how this animal sees. So we treat the fly as a black box. Now, I'll tell you right now. I'm going to go through this slide, and I'm going to lose some of you. I mean, I might even lose myself, but I'm going to lose some of you. Just hang on. I promise you'll get back, OK? So I'll get through this. I'll just go through this quickly. Treat the fly as a black box. You have some input. You have some output. This h of t function is called the impulse response. If you have that function, mathematically, you can use it to predict the response to any arbitrary input. You compute this with a cross-correlation of the input and the output. So if you know what you're giving the fly and you know what you're getting out of the fly, you can cross-correlate those inputs and derive this clever little function. And I'll tell you why that's important in a minute. How we do it was we use white noise. We basically perturb the animal's visual environment with a white noise sequence. So we jitter the world back and forth in time in this sort of white noise analysis uh, with this white noise trajectory. We record the animal's steering response in black to these random perturbations in red. And now we have y and we have f. And we can just cross-correlate those two things and derive h. This function of time, so time goes this way. At time 0, what this means is this is the sort of unitary response, steering response a fly would give if you just took the whole world and popped it very quickly, very briefly. Okay? You could think of this as um, maybe, a, so this kind of analysis is done in uh, photoreceptors. If you record from a photoreceptor and, and, and shine a very bright light, instantaneously short, extremely high intensity, you'd get this kind of a response. So this is the impulse response of the entire fly, right? Not a neuron, the whole fly. Armed with this, we can ask, can we predict the re response to any arbitrary input? And so we basically give flies some random perturbation in black and record the fly's response to some new white noise sequence. And then in red, we overlay the convolution of this function and that input, and that's plotted in red. Holy smokes. When I saw this, I just couldn't believe it. So we plotted the, the prediction against the response, and you get this beautiful straight line with an R value that says we can explain a massive amount of the variation or, or the dependence of the animal's output to the sensory input. This means that with this mathematical function that you can implement in no time in a processor, we can literally fly the fly. You give me a trajectory through space, I'll tell you what the fly will do with it. Okay. So we're going to use this to explain feature detection. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to basically jitter the world around, jitter this crazy um, paradoxical bar with this white noise sequence. So now in time, this is what the fly would see. And the animal's trying to stabilize that thing, and it's doing this. It's like, what are you, why are you doing this to me? But it performs beautifully. Um, and in response, you would get, you know, sort of a, you would get this kernel. Okay, this, this um, we call it a kernel. That's sort of technical speak. It's this impulse response. Oh, like that's not jargon. Um, it is this unitary steering response to the briefest, strongest visual perturbation you could produce. Does that make sense? 
Okay, now we can measure this for the bar in the front, which is what you just saw in the movie. So if you move the bar around in the front, you can measure this little response. But then you can do a cool thing, and you can say, well, put the bar over here and measure. Put the bar over here and measure. Put the bar over here. And look at spatially around the whole visual field, how does this transformation change? And we do another clever trick, which is we say, all right, we can separate the motion of the bar from the motion inside the bar and use two separate white noise sequences to move the bar, move its position around with one white noise sequence, and move coherent motion inside the bar with a second white noise sequence, and simultaneously derive two functions of space. We call these spatiotemporal action fields. And so what you're looking at here is time going down again. And this in the center, if this center line would give you, would be this kernel right here. Okay, it starts out at zero, it peaks to some massive high value, and then it decays and flattens out. This axis is space in the arena, minus 180 to 180 around the arena. So you have this really nice space-time graph of how big the correlation of animal steering behavior is to the random input for the actual motion component inside the bar. You can do the same thing for the moving feature that has no net motion. And you come up with a very different looking graph that varies over space and rises over time. And these are just projections of these two graphs um, through the time axis. And just to give you a profile, they look different. Look, I don't expect you to understand all this and integrate all this. I want you to understand the following idea, though, that this is, a this is the impulse response in space and time. And this is an impulse response in space and time. And we can use these things to predict the fly's behavioral response to this really complicated stuff. OK, so we have a good handle on local motion and global feature mo uh, uh, tracking with just this one mathematical analysis. How well does it work? Well, you basically, there's, a, there's basically one mathematical operation you need to integrate all of this into a zero parameter model. And then here's, a, here's the data that we're trying to explain. The model, it's not even a model, frankly. It's just a, it's a mathematical computation that, that the black box analysis predicts we should be able to do. Okay, it's not even a model. Does it work on the flies? There's a model prediction in blue, superimposed. Let me turn it off again because you might have missed it. And there it is. It's hard to see, isn't it? Why? Because it's like right on top of the data. OK, so in the words of the grad student in the lab that actually you know, got this working and sent me the data at 4 o'clock in the morning, and to, to quote Jacob, booyah. <laughs> <laughs> I got up at it. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> this works. So this is really nice. This means that these spatiotemporal action fields predict higher order motion tracking. This is a behavioral phenomenon, right? This is the whole fly. So imagine if we stuck an electrode or, or imaging from neurons that are making these elemental computations. We would expect to be able to do the same exact analysis on these neurons and build these fields and then literally just in Photoshop overlay them all and say, how many do you need to stack on top of each other before you actually build the behavior? Like, what's the minimum amount of physiology you need to do to fully explain this phenomenon? OK, so I've told you about local motion signals integrated in peripheral visual circuits that flies compute second order motion, that figure tracking has two separate subsystems, pure motion and feature, and that these things can explain higher order motion tracking. Let's switch to talk about olfaction for a few minutes. How am I doing? I'm good. No, this is good. This is actually a quicker section. It's easier. Now, here's a fly's brain looking in through a window cut in the front of the cartoon fly's head. We know a lot about the olfactory circuits, at least in the sensory organs, the antennae, which are here. These antennae are separated by 120 microns. Store that for a moment. 
And we, like I said, we know a lot about the circuitry. So this is circuits inside the brain, and they're color-coded according to how synapses wire with specific receptor expression in the sensory neurons. We know a lot about the cellular logic and the molecular determinants of how these receptors are localized. We know much less about, how, about what happens after the very first sensory relay. Everything beyond this very first sensory synapse deeper in the brain is really a, a mystery. Um, and so we're trying to understand sort of from a reverse uh, engineering approach what is the fly capable of doing behaviorally to understand what these circuit computations must be doing, right? Because any perception must have been computed. That is an assumption that we make in our lab. Any perception that an animal has must have been computed. So one computation we were looking at is, you know, is this idea of spatial tracking. From the intro slide, I mentioned that you know, the dog and the, and the fly and the human were all sort of making spatial comparisons in some way. Can flies make spatial comparisons across the two antennae? They're separated by 100 microns. The wings are beating, so generating airflow. When a grad student in the lab came to me and said, I want to try this. I want to see if the animals can detect a gradient across the antennae. Like, you know, is it more intense on this side? More, so a static odor gradient across 100 microns when the animals are flying at 20 centimeters per second. I'm like, great. So it's got to have microsecond interval precision. There's just no way this experiment's going to work. But you should do it anyway. <laughs> I actually told him not to bother doing it, but if he was going to do it, I had some ideas about how it would be easier for him. So he went off and tried it. So what he did basically was to put animals in this magnetic tether system. Again, so you, you, t you tether the animal. We measured the gradient, by the way, and that's what you're looking at in the heat map here. So how intense is the odor over the fly's head? And this is all to scale. And so it's no wonder that the animals track right at this point over time, because that's where the odor is the, is the, is the best. If you visually drag the animals to one side or the other of the arena, so you literally start them in the plume, but then you visually trick them and you drag them 90 degrees away, do they turn, if they're able to detect the gradient, they should know, turn back this way. Or if you drag them this way and the odor's over here, they should know, okay, stronger on this side, turn that way. Can they do it? And they absolutely can do it. So here the same group of flies was visually dragged 90 degrees away, and every single one of them turned straight back into the plume over about six seconds. Take the same flies, start them on the other side, and they go straight into the plume. Okay, and the gradient would look like this. So yeah, the animal has intensity information, but there's not much. This is a really high gain system, really sensitive system. So bilateral feature tracking works. The animals make bilateral comparisons. The algorithm is really simple. The intensity on the left is greater than the right, turn left. Otherwise, turn right, okay? Any manipulation we've made genetically or with good old fashioned glue or good old-fashioned scissors um, bears out this simple algorithm. Shocking, shocking, frankly, to me. You know, I, I never thought this would work. But now we have a good idea about how spatial pattern is recognized in odor tracking for features. Temporal patterns are a little more complicated to explain, but let me just introduce the idea of temporal integration by saying that you know that this video projection is not moving, really. It's a series of static snapshots, you know, movies that you watch. There's no movies here, right? But when I play a movie, you know it's not really moving. You know that it's a series of sequential static images that are played so fast that your brain can't keep up, and your brain thinks it's real motion, right? That's because it's being presented beyond your flicker fusion, your perceptual flicker fusion. This graph is from 1956, and it basically shows that your fusion frequency as a function of intensity changes. So if the light gets dimmer, it, you actually, it requires things, you have to make things go faster, otherwise you begin to see flicker. 
and it changes with wavelength. So these curves are all different because when you change the wavelength of light that you're perceiving, the, the flicker fusion frequency varies. Okay? So it's not just one fusion rate that works for your whole visual pathway. We tested this idea in flies by putting them in this plume and then pulsing the plume on and off with the assumption that they're hungry and they're going to just try to track the plume. And the only reason that they would diverge away is if they can't track the plume because it's, the frequency is too low. And they're looking at a slideshow now in the odor regime instead of a movie. Right? And so certainly that actually works. If you pulse, the, if you make the plume frequency really low, then the tracking error goes up. All right? So this axis is tracking error. So the flies are trying to keep it low. When you have the continuous plume on, tracking error is really low. When you turn the water vapor on, there's no tracking. So the tracking error would be really high. So as you Pulse, if you, if you reduce the pulse rate, make the movie play slower and slower and slower and slower, then eventually the tracking error goes up. But the cool thing is that the tracking error depends on what odor you present. Like, what? Um, that doesn't make any sense. If you're a fly, that means that you don't track ethyl butyrate, banana, and vinegar equally well if they're presented in the same temporal sequence. You're much better at tracking vinegar than you are banana or ethyl butyrate, which is odd. But I could discuss why that is later. So now we have a good handle on how temporal patterns are integrated for odor feature tracking. And as I said, it's phenomenologically similar to the dependence on our own visual pathway upon wavelength here, which we thought was pretty cool. So I'm going to put it all together. Um, it, it, it turns out that I did a free flight experiment when I was a postdoc. It was a dumb experiment. At the t I thought so at the time, but but uh, you know, <laughs> turns out that it made my whole career. So you know, there's no accounting for <clears throat> you know spontaneous postdoc taste, I suppose. Um, at the time, what I was doing was I was looking at odor tracking in a big free flight arena, and I was putting a fly in a one meter diameter arena, and a little drop of odor on the floor, and you know I couldn't get the flies to like go and find the odor. You know, why is this? It's this big tub. It had lights on the outside and a big white arena. I, the flies weren't finding the odor. And um, uh, it was, an undergraduate in the lab actually said, well, maybe they just can't see well enough. And you know, you got to put some kind of pattern in there so they can see, and then they can find the odor. And I thought, you know, come on. Really? I'll try it. <laughs> and sure enough, as soon as you put a pattern in the, in the arena, any random pattern will do. Shoop, you know, they go and they localize the odor. And I, I couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe this. This undergraduate, I kissed him. I kissed him. Like, I, 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 he didn't know what was going on. And then I showed him the data. And he was like, thank God you showed me the data because I was going to punch you out. So, so, so it was great. So it showed you know, this really peculiar phenomenon that the flies can't simply smell their way to an odor source. There's some dependence on visual motion or visual scene. And we explored what that was. We had no mechanistic way of testing it. Um, I had some ideas, and so in my own, I, I saved those ideas. This is what you do when you're a postdoc. You save your best ideas when you have your own lab. <clears throat> so for all the postdocs in the audience, take note, and all the PIs in the audience with new postdocs, <laughs> try to wring it out of them. Um, do the best you can. So, so in this case now, what we're going to do is we have the fly tethered, and we have to be able to present visual motion and olfactory cues in a controlled way. Okay. And so we just envelop the fly in this rigid tether in an odor that we can just flip on and off. Okay? And then we can record the magnitude of the animal's steering reaction. Does it change? Does the steering reaction to visual motion change with odor? That's the simplest way to phrase the hypothesis. And so 
what we did to test this idea was go back to this sort of engineering approach and say, all right, let's, let's measure this impulsive response to a whole visual panorama. So we've got this random bunch of dots, and we're modulating it with this white noise, and we're going to derive this function again and see if that function changes when we turn odor on and off at random. Right? So here's what we do. Here is this rotation optic flow impulse response, or unitary steering response to the fastest, strongest, briefest motion you could produce at time zero, and you get this little pop. And if you notice, the red line is above the blue one. That's because when the odor is on, the size of this, of this function goes up. So the correlation between the animal's visual input and its steering behavior increases when the odor's on and decreases when the odor's off, which is really intriguing. So it says that ro odor rapidly enhances rotation optimotor response. Optimotor is just a fancy word for visual eye tracking. Okay? And this could help explain why flies require visual motion in order to, to stabilize themselves in an odor plume. How might that work? So Nick's hypothesis was, well, what's the implication here? Does this mean that if you were to put flies in our magnetic tether arena where they can steer in and out of the plume, if you just turn off the visual display, will they lose the plume? Because they don't have this, um, they don't have this signal enhanced and they can't see any rotation? So we tested that idea. And while we tested that idea, at the same time, we figured, well, let's, let's, let's genetically silence a major target of olfactory input in the high order olfactory system, this thing called a mushroom body, which sits way up three synapses away from the sensory input, that integrates tons of olfactory information in all arthropods. And we genetically silenced this structure, or did it with a, uh, a, a, a chemical that uh, we can feed the maggots during larval development which is a DNA replication inhibitor and shuts off stem cell division at exactly the time when the stem cells are dividing to build this structure. And no other stem cells of importance are building this structure. So we can pharmacologically ablate this thing or genetically silence it and look at how that function changes. And so lo and behold, when you uh, pharmacologically uh, destroy the mushroom bodies, you get the visual response but no olfactory enhancement, suggesting that high order circuit is involved. When you genetically silence an otherwise intact mushroom body, you get the same result. The little teeny um, responses are there, but the odor doesn't change them at all. So you basically just get the, the blue curve in both cases. So this, well, memory is not important in this case. I can discuss the fact that the mushroom bodies are implicated in learning and memory. Maybe we've discovered a new form of memory that's extremely short term, but that's, that's a creaky branch that I'd rather not step out on unless you question it later. But the point is that this circuit is certainly involved in this rapid multisensory integration of olfactory input that enhances the sensitivity of visual motion. And the implication is in this movie. Here's a montage of one of our flies tracking a plume. I just animated it because you can't see it. Well, here you're looking down at a striped arena, lots of visual contrast. The animal can very clearly see optic flow moving as it steers back and forth. We've put the animal in the plume. You can kind of see the wings beating, a little bit of blur in the video image as it tracks back and forth across this gradient making those antennal comparisons and staying in the plume. Now you just turn off the lights, if you will, turn off the stripes. And this fly is pretty good at maintaining a stable position, but it doesn't take a look, that's it, out of the plume already. Now this animal is behaving as if there was no plume there at all, statistically indistinguishable. Unable to maintain position in the plume, even though we put her right in it, started her right, and it's a she, right in the plume. Still unable to maintain position in the plume without that wide field visual cue. Turn the stripes back on, boom, they relocalize the plume. Turn them off, they disappear. Turn them on, they go back. It's a little do-si-do. -si -do. 
It works all day long. And so this is really nice. This is really kind of elegant. We can show this in some data. So here on the vertical axis is the arena angles. Zero is the front where the odor port is. Here's some, just some raw trajectories. Yes, yes, turn on the attractive odor. All the flies track. Okay. For the same flies, just dim the contrast of the display and put the flies in the plume, start them right in the sweet spot, put them right there. They can't go wrong, but they all veer off. They can't maintain the position inside the plume without this wide field visual feedback that activates this high order circuitry to enhance the sensitivity of this transformation between visual input and motor output. So here I've explained that plume spatial edges are tracked by this really simple algorithm. Intensity in the left, greater than right, turn left, and vice versa. By the way, if it's an aversive odorant, this operator just gets inverted. It's really that simple. The plume temporal edges, so if the, world's being, if the plume is being modulated in time, but not space, but in, a, in time as you walk up it, up the plume, your critical fusion frequency lies somewhere between 0.15 and 2 hertz, but it remarkably varies with odor. Rather, it's a stunning finding. Um, it perplexes many of the olfactory physiologists, but I think I know why. Anyway, the mushroom body olfactory circuits modify rotational optomotor responses. A pretty cool demonstration, very clear circuit demonstration of this high-order multisensory fusion. And this odor-activated optomotor response, um, eye tracking response, is required to stabilize plume tracking, which is why my undergraduate was so clever at Berkeley when he said, oh, just put some visual pattern on the arena because clearly flies require visual input to stabilize their trajectory through an odor plume. He didn't say any of this, of course, but you know, he may, I may as well attribute it to him. So OK, let's, let me just summarize this phenomenon in, a, in, in, in two forms, and then we'll be done, and we can go have some drinks. Um, we can, we, we, uh, what are we going to do? So, so we're going to talk about sensor fusion. Here's a circuit model. So this is what engineers like to do. You like to build a circuit model and draw connections. And you do this because it gives you a graphical representation of mathematical equations that you could put behind all of this and make computational models and test them. So here you would have optic flow in the eye. There's some motion encoding early in the visual pathway, which I talked a little bit about. Um, there are separate optic flow channels. I didn't talk about any of that, but you saw the yaw kernel. Okay, and so that is processed sequentially. Now, these pathways are diverged to motor output. The yaw pathway, we think, has this big lump of noise that's adaptive, that's injected into the yaw pathway. And I didn't talk about why I think that's the case, but I could. And what happens is the odor signals come in from the antennae. They're processed in the peripheral olfactory circuits. They pass through the mushroom body, and the mushroom body circuitry shuts off the noise and increases the correlation between sensory input and motor output, makes that kernel pop up. So this circuit model, as I said, we can write equations to back it up. We can build computational models that can test it. Right? We can ablate genetic circuits and say, you know, where in this process hierarchy are these circuits important? Let's consider a sort of simpler I and mean, perhaps more um, timely um, uh, phenomenon, which would be sort of a, a sensor fusion behavioral model. So here, look, you know, flies love wine glasses. I mean, you, you know, how long does it take? You open a bottle of wine on your patio in the densest urban jungle you know, in America, and how long does it take before a fruit fly lands on that wine glass? My, my wife says, where are they? Like, what? I haven't seen a fruit fly in a month. I open a wine glass. Like, where? Are they just sitting up here going, come on, come on, open up a wine glass? I mean, it's amazing. It doesn't take them a long time, right? And then they, boop, they're right there. And then they drown themselves in there, and you've got a little protein in your wine. So, OK. So, so here, we're almost done. So, so in no odor, this would be a, a circuitous flight path. The animal's flying around, and it's trying to find something that smells good, OK? And, and 
when it finds something that smells good, if there's no visual feedback, it may be able to rely on this temporal integration and this spatial integration to an extent and sort of circuitously move around and maybe generally kind of head toward the odor. But if you add visual feedback, enhance that rotational optomotor system, if your rotational, if your sensitivity to visual rotation is very high, and, you're going to and you compensate for visual rotation, which is what all seeing animals do, including you. If I put you in a striped drum and drifted the drum, your eyes would involuntarily track the drum to try to reduce that slip. If you have a really sensitive system, if the world begins to drift, you compensate. So you fly straight okay, using that visual, that visual cue. So when the odor is on and you have visual feedback, this is what the trajectory would look like. So these actually are simulated from real fly behavior. No odor, odor on, no visual feedback. You imply, employ some of those algorithms, but not all of them. You add the vision algorithm, and wham. That's why they can find the wine glass. <clears throat> OK. So with that, I would just like to highlight very briefly in 35 seconds um, future goals and what it will take to achieve them. Right? So the idea behind this talk was in part to give you a flavor for what we do in the lab. And believe me, this is just barely a flavor. Um, I would love to have you come by and visit the lab. I'm in 2009 Terasaki Life Sciences Building. We have flies glued to sticks doing virtual reality video games. It's like a high-tech flea circus. You know, we've got, we've got two-photon microscopy and fluorescence microscopy and fly pushing and flies with legs coming out of their head because that's a genetic mutation that we think is kind of cool but irrelevant. Um, um, come, please come by and see. So, so but more generally, you know, what do we want to do? So we want to build an auto a fully autonomous multi-sensory robotic device. And, and the engineers want to build one because they want to, like, they have an application. They want to say, well, you know, the military is interested. You know, you're outside some bunker, and you, you don't want to go in there. Like, you go. I'm not going. Well, take RoboMoth. Chuck it through the window and flip open your iPhone and, like, look around and, like, watch what the, what the animal sees. And, all right, building's clear. Let's go. Or you could have, you know, earthquake, you know, just pour out your box of robotic cockroaches into the rubble, and they, they go down. And then they radio back, found one, you know, and, and, they, and you know where they are. So, you know, the engineers have that. My application is... If I build a robot that doesn't work, and you engineer a solution to make it work, I can go back to the biology and say, huh, we needed a computation that does this to make the robot work. Maybe the fly has that computation, right? So it's a really nice two-way street. So we're going to build a fully autonomous robotic device. And so we next need to study the physiology of the neuronal microcircuits to implement the algorithms that I just talked about. We've got to be able to peer into the brain while the animals are doing this and watch these computations being made in real time. We want to develop control theory for dynamical systems to be able to test some of the ideas about how all this comes together. And we need to be able to build soft we had, we have the software model, multi-sensor fusion, and then apply it in firmware on the robots and see if we're right about how all this stuff comes together. What do we need to succeed? Well, we need in vivo recordings of neuronal activity during these behaviors that requires two photon imaging. That's a $500,000 instrument. Hopefully, we're going to have it in the next month. We will see. The grant gods be with me. Um, and, 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 but more importantly, and more sort of salient to, 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 to this conversation and, and hope, you know, over, over drinks, we need scientists that are trained across disciplines. I mean, obviously, we're built, you can't buy a virtual reality fly flight simulator, you know, off the shelf at Costco. You know, you can't order one up from, you know, Amazon.com. You've got to build it in the lab yourself, it's, and it's tough. So you need to know a lot more about electrical engineering than I ever wished, you know, or thought I'd, you know, organic chemistry? <laughs> no problem. Come on, really. I mean, you know, try some electrical engineering. It's mind-numbingly difficult. Um, so we need scientists trained across disciplines in physics, neurobiology, engineering. We need to recruit from disparate di disciplines. We need students that are trained in these different disciplines. I'll teach you the biology. If you know, you know, if you know Ohm's Law, 
we'll start there. I mean, it helps, okay? We need to train across disciplines. When students come into the lab and they know a lot about genetics, you know what? You're going to have to learn how to program in MATLAB, and you're going to have to learn fast. And you know, this is just how it goes. So you need to be able to get students that are willing to train across disciplines. We need collaborative efforts with experts in neurogenetics, robotics, and control theory. It looks like we do everything in the lab. You know, we rely on lots and lots of expertise here on campus that we can, where we can go and say, look, Dave Krantz, I, you know, I need to be able to keep this gene shut off until the animal's three days old. Like, I can't have it expressed during larval de development or the whole brain gets messed up. Like, how do, we, how do we conditionally express it later? Or David Walker, I ask him the same question. You know, how, do we, how do we turn on this effector gene you know, only when we want to, but not, you know, not by some developmental program? Or I can go to Jack Judy in electrical engineering and say, we need an electrode that's so small that we can record multi-unit activity from 25 square micron tissue. And he says, theoretically impossible, but let's try it. Right? This is what you need to be able to do. So we need to diversify faculty recruitment efforts and focus um, on interdisciplinary conferences. This is really important. I've been to a couple of these. Focused, small interdisciplinary conferences to get engineers and biologists talking to each other. Engineers don't want to build another MP3 player. They don't. You know, the students, they, they want to, they were like, flies? Sweet. Like, let's build a fly. How much, you know, how fun is that? So small, focused interdisciplinary conferences can cross-fertilize. And we need some risk-taking by funding agencies or endowments or any other mechanism because a third of what I do in the lab, there's no way I'm ever going to get grant support to do this stuff. The best ideas that we test are, are never supported by federal funds, period, okay? So there's got to be, and federal funding is drying up. <laughs> You know, as ideas are, are getting more and more technically challenging. So there's got to be something that bridges that gap. So with that, look, I'd like to thank you all for being here. And really, I need to thank this whole colorful um, uh, crew that I have in my laboratory, which is made up of undergraduates, uh, graduate students, postdocs. You know, we run the whole gamut. And I owe everything of what I've said to the activity of these people. Thank you very much.